Welcome to Humanity Unlocked, where we know that listening to someone's story with an intent to gain insight is an important key in unlocking each person's humanity. Your host, Kimberly, is known for her profound curiosity in human behavior, giving her a long-standing reputation for being a deeply engaged and exceptional listener. Each one of us has a unique origin story that helps to explain the unfolding of the path we've traveled. When the story gets told, it provides a glimpse into the context and nuances that we, the listeners, may have otherwise never considered. Join Kimberly as she embarks on the journey of a lifetime to unlock and reveal the humanity of every person she meets. Here's Kimberly. Hi guys, welcome back to Humanity Unlocked. I am your host, Kimberly Daya, and today I have a very special guest introduced to you. Katira Ross is an LMFT, a licensed marriage and family therapist. She has worked in the field of psychology for 20 years with an extensive resume that encompasses a wide range of experience. Katira is our very first guest for a very special reason. As some of you already know, I have offered her a recurring guest spot on the on select episodes of Humanity Unlocked podcast, having um, Katira walk us through some of the more delicate discussions, especially those that involve trauma, will be a tremendous asset to both our guests and listeners as we work together to sort of understand life in um, someone else's shoes. And having said that, uh, today's episode is for you to get to know Katira. She is a proud wife and mother, a full-time working therapist and marathon runner. With all of the trappings of an idyllic life, one could easily assume that Katira is the picture of both physical and mental well-being, yet uh, bubbling right under the surface lies her battle with the neurodegenerative disorder, Parkinson's disease. Today is a tad bit of a role reversal with Katira on the other side of a conversation about physical and mental health. Uh, we'll talk about her training and experience in the field of psychology and her outlook on the future as she prepares to open her private practice. We'll discuss her diagnosis with Parkinson's disease, how it's impacted her life thus far, and her approach to coping with symptoms that accompany this particular disease. And lastly, we'll talk about her role here at the Humanity Unlocked podcast. So please join me in welcoming this very special guest, our resident therapist, Katira Ross. Thank you so much for joining us, Katira. Thank you so much, Kim, for affording me this opportunity to be part of the Humanity Unlocked podcast. Of course. Um, I really look forward to sharing with you my experience and just offering my knowledge working in the mental health field. Um, I also hope to provide you know, some insight into the connection between one's mental health and physical health from a behavioral health perspective. Awesome. Yeah, I want to begin actually by giving everyone a little bit of insight into your early interest in behavioral health, your education, and your uh, professional background. So let's start with when you initially decided to get into this field. Do you remember when you, like why and when you chose this career path? Um, well, as far back as I remember, I mean, I was a young girl, probably like sixth or seventh grade. Um, I just always was, you know, been intrigued by human behavior, you know, why people think and behave as they do, um, which is why I became interested in psychology. Um, so I knew from a really young age, becoming a therapist was the career path that I wanted to follow. That's amazing. It's, that's, it's funny because I have said that so many times. I The thing that fascinates me most in the world is why people do the things they do. And when you come at it from a place of curiosity, it's much easier to be you know, less judgmental when you come at it from a place of being curious about, hmm, I don't necessarily agree with you, but 
I wonder why they think that way, you know? So that's kind of the goal, I think, with this podcast. Um, and you and I are like kindred spirits that way, is to come at it from a place of curiosity and hoping that the listeners will, you know, do the same. Um, and I want to kind of go through your um, your education and your career because it, it is extensive, and I want to give everybody a little bit of a glimpse into um, the last 20 years. Well, actually, more than 20 years. Um, I do tend to believe that our experiences and endeavors, you know, good or bad, teach us something that can be applied in each subsequent chapter of our lives. And you have had quite the resume, so I want to ask what each professional endeavor has taught you um, that you've been able to apply either in your own life or in the way you practice therapy. You you begun by earning your bachelor's in psychology at UC Davis and went on to earn your master's in counseling at no, in counseling psychology at Santa Clara University. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So how was that? I mean, how was that? Did that actually prepare you for working in the field? Is there any way to prepare for working in the field? There's no There's no real way to prepare. I mean, I think it's just more about getting into the field and it's actually doing the work. So, you know, when I was an undergraduate student at UC Davis, um, I did a lot of volunteer work to make sure that this is exactly the career field I wanted to go into. Um, and just kind of prepare myself like what my role was going to be. Um, so I spent probably three and a half years um, volunteering at the Suicide Prevention Center, oh. um, which really opened my eyes to a lot because you get a variety of different phone calls from different people struggling in different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of clients suicidal. And so it really, that's what really drove my, more of my interest in becoming a psych, you know, a therapist is just I knew that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to see if there's any part that I could play in kind of helping these people progress through their illness. Um, so I did a lot of volunteer work before I even graduated with my bachelor's degree. Wow. Um, and they just kind of moved on to get my master's. So how? So you were volunteering at the suicide prevention hotline. Would, would you have been like 18, 19, 20 years old? No, I was actually or... a little older. I was an older student, so I was probably in my early 20s. Okay. And did that interest you more did it scare you away did it what what first of all how busy are those hotlines do a lot of people call in oh yes really (laughs) a lot a lot more a lot more calls than you would ever imagine and it's not the calls vary so it's not just you know every single phone call is someone calling to say you know I want to harm myself yeah it's just a variety of just different issues someone could be very depressed um, very anxious um, or some people just want to talk they have no one else in their life to provide support so you know it actually drove me to have more of an interest in the field because for the ser- more serious phone calls that I did receive I was like you know that's what I want to do I want to see if I could uh, you know help people you know overcome this depression that they're experiencing or this anxiety um, yeah. and you know personally too I've always struggled with anxiety and not medicated but just always been very a worrier mm-hmm. And so when people would, you know, share their stories about having anxiety, I could totally relate to that because I've experienced it myself. And so I think that also was a big part in me also wanting to become a therapist is because I know what it feels like on Mm -hmm. the other side. Mm -hmm. Like you see yourself in each person a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, question real quick. Do those hotlines still exist? They do. They do? Yes. Okay, I'm going to come back on in, a, in another episode, and we'll we'll get that information for anybody who's listening and who's interested, because I think that that's amazing, and I think everyone should have it. Um, and yeah, 
I could actually, I, I don't want to get off topic, but that's, mm-hmm. I didn't, I did not know that about Katira. So that's really <laughs> interesting. So you did that as an undergraduate and then you specifically studied health psychology. Um, I did an emphasis in that. So I took my first health psychology class as an undergraduate and it's become, I fell in love with it. I even had thought about pursuing just health psychology in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not a lot of opportunities in that field right now. It's getting more, you know, more well known. Um, so when I when I did my master's degree program, they did have a health psychology track. So I took additional courses in just health psychology because I wanted to be able to. I've also had an interest in health, so I wanted to be able to be the therapist where I could provide you know assistance in like working with their mental health as well as their physical health. Right. Because so many clients struggle with both. It's not just like I'm coming into the therapist to you know talk about my depression, my anxiety. I also have like chronic illnesses or whatever it may be. So you kind of have to treat both. Even though I'm not a medical professional, mm-hmm. you have to have knowledge to be able to kind of work with your clients in that respect. Totally. I mean, somebody's chronic physical illness could easily lead to um, developing a mental illness. And then their mental illness, we know how that also affects the body. So I could definitely see the crossover. That's fascinating. And I think that if I could go back, you know, that's probably the area I would go into too. Um, okay, so then, so you graduated with your master's from Santa Clara University, and your career started around 2004. Is that right? Um, it started earlier. It started, yeah, to, yeah, 2004. So I actually started working at a transitional residential facility. Right. So that just means clients actually lived in, in this facility for about a year and a half that had severe mental health diagnosis, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, just, you know, mostly schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of schizophrenic clients. Wow. Um, and so I was basically their counselor. Um, and so we did groups, you know, throughout the day, administer the medications. And that's where I learned so much, mm. much more than I've ever learned in any, any position because you're actually seeing these clients on a day-to-day basis and they're coming to you and talking with you um, sharing their very deepest, you know, yeah, uh, trauma stories, um, and just even the medication aspect. I learned a lot because mm-hmm. you have to know about the medications and you know make sure they're taking them appropriately. So the, I would say that position really gave me so much experience, and yeah. I wasn't even licensed at the time. So to really? know that it, you have this position where you're not yet a therapist, but learning all of this. So I had so much knowledge before I even like went to my master's program, and even after I finished that. You know, becoming becoming a therapist, I knew so much more than most people would know just right. by this one position. So that uh, position only required you to have your bachelor's. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. So mm-hmm. you got a lot of um, like on the job training before you even got on the job. Well, yeah. So that's so so schizophrenia. Like, what other issues are we talking um, about? Bipolar. bipolar. Um, one client had uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, Obviously depression, I'm guessing. Exactly. A lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, PTSD, um, just an array. And it was a very small facility, so there was like 13 clients that lived there for a year and a half that we would work with. So each client lived there for a year and a half? Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. Okay. So then you were working with one – you got to actually work with them for long periods of time, which kind of helps you to get to know them and understand the situation a little bit better, which Mm – Wow. Okay. And then, all right. So then you were there for about three years. If mm-hmm. I, I mean, I followed sort of what your resume was online. <laughs> so tell me if anything is, is off. Okay. Um, so about three years you were there and with severe, they had severe psychiatric disorders. And then you worked in research. Is that right? At UC okay. Davis studying a number of psychotic and psychiatric disorders and spent a number of years working as a research study coordinator for the Autism Phenome Project at the UC Davis Mind Institute. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Right. 
what did you how was that experience for you because um, you were there for you kind of worked on research for quite for, a bit for there. a while because yeah. when you when you when you're a student at UC Davis they're very much research oriented so even when I was a graduate undergraduate student I was doing a re, I was on, involved in a research study with another professor and then also during that time I also had a position at UC Davis Medical Center and I worked with a psychiatrist who was very much interested in People that had severe psychiatric disorders along with, you know, chronic ment- uh, physical health disorders. So what I would do is I would travel to all the different mental health clinics in Sacramento, and I would basically administer a health questionnaire for the clients that are waiting to be seen by their psychiatrist mm-hmm. to see if they, you know, kind of what exams have they had, um, if they've ever had any, ex- you know, physical exams. And a lot of that population, they don't take care of their health mm-hmm. because they're so flooded by their mental health disorders. They don't have the capacity to take care of themselves physically. So it was such an interesting study just because there was such a high need. Um, you know, the psychiatrist wrote a book on it um, and then eventually established his own practice yeah. where he focuses a lot on health psychology. Yeah. Um, so that was also another contributor to me getting really interested in the health portion of, you know, psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for like a year and a half. Um, and I didn't finish with the study because I graduated. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ended. And then I had a friend who actually took over my position. Um, but there was, you know, a published paper on it. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Wrote a book. I actually did some editing chapters for him on the book. Um, and then for the, the research study that I worked on at the Mind Institute, that was just more about like recruiting uh, children to participate in this large study. The and largest one to date. Th- th- still the largest one yeah. to date. Um, very comprehensive. I mean, they were doing MRI scans on these young children, blood draws, EEGs, just to try to figure out what is the root of autism. Mm-hmm. So that study is actually so is still going on to this day. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. Still ongoing. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's amazing. I mean, the longer the study, the better, right? We're right. getting more information. Mm-hmm. Um, so you so working in research for that amount of time, did you enjoy that, or how how did it feel in comparison or in contrast to working in the inpatient facility? Well, I mean, it's different because research is such a long progression of time. I mean, you don't see results right away, obviously. Right. So as much as I love learning about all the research and how what goes into it, I mean, I prefer the outpatient setting just because you see clients face to face. And you, when you're conducting therapy, you can see results like, mm-hmm. quicker than right. you could in, in terms of research. But it's kind of nice because you really have run the gamut between both, you know, both sides of that spectrum. Been on the the um, backside of it and in the forefront of it, so it makes you like a well-rounded therapist that way, which I think is interesting. Um, so talk to me then about your experience working as a crisis service coordinator. I think in healthcare. Mm-hmm clinician for the county. I know you were in contact with a number of uh, issues that for a lot of us are beyond our realm of understanding. And I know that this job in particular, um, as you told me uh, when we had dinner, tested every limit you had both mentally and physically. And so can you kind of describe that position and what your experience was like? Yeah. So when I worked for the county, my first position was as a crisis service coordinator. And you know, that was basically taking all the crisis calls for the county. And I worked for a very small county. So the po- although the population is very small, there was such a huge population of need for those that struggle with mental health disorders. So I would take all the crisis calls. I would do, you know, 51, 50 evaluations, meaning going to their local emergency room, 
meeting with clients there, determining if they need to be hospitalized um, or if they just need simply, um, you know, a safety plan to kind of get them through this crisis. Yeah. Um, also worked with a local county jail in that county. Um, so anyone that, any prisoner that was sent into the safety cell, um, I would evaluate them to determine if they're, if it's safe enough to go back to their cell. Um, so that's just, I mean, there was such an array of disorders I saw just in that position alone. Yeah. Um, and you see pretty much everything. Yeah. I mean, are you, is it mostly just adults? Is it children? Is it? Adults, children, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Older adults. And so were you going into homes as well? Is, this, is it kind of like, um, what's that position? I'm blanking out. Um, like a caseworker when, um. Oh, like a social worker? Social worker. Yeah. Is it kind of like that or no? No, not quite. No, it's a little bit different. No? Okay. Um, yeah, because I wasn't visiting clients in the home. Um, I did for another position I held where I was actually going to um, – I worked with children at the time and teenagers, so I would actually go into their home, mm-hmm. meet with them. And most of these children were all involved in CPS care. So it's kind of coming into the home and meeting with a foster parent, doing what we call family team meetings to kind of – establish some goals of what the what the client needs to work on. So that was very interesting because, you know, you're going to someone's home and it's very personal. Yeah. Um, a lot of these foster parents or family members did not want us to come into the home because it's kind of like an invasion of privacy, right? Yeah. But we're there to kind of support the child and what their needs are. So, it, you know, that was kind of a, a scary position because there were times where I had clients that lived in San Francisco mm-hmm. that lived in the projects. So, you know, me coming out of my car, going in to visit someone in these projects, you know, you know, they, you're not really welcomed. By yourself? By yourself, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, and and again, too, it wasn't that I was afraid to do this. It just was the, the families and the foster parents just were not really very welcoming of that. Did you earn, I mean, was there a point in time where they kind of let their guard down or is it? It's once they get to know you. Yeah. Once they know that you're there to really help and support them, yeah. then they feel more comfortable. But in the beginning, the first two meetings, you know, they have reservations and they're not really forthcoming with information until you really just talk with them and yeah. just get to know them better. That kind of brings up a, a broader question with therapy in general. Is that sort of the case with every client or patient that you see like is the guard up in the I mean you have a very disarming energy about you and you know when I met you and talked to you for well not met you for the first time but sat down with you when we talked for like three hours and you just you have a way of putting people at ease and you have a very calming um, energy and vibe about you so I would assume that sort of translates over into your clients and maybe even situations like that I mean People can sense, you know, when, when when someone's a safe person to speak with, I think. I mean, right. I don't know if they can. I, I feel like I can. But um, so, okay. So in that position, um, what do you think was, because I know you said it tested you like in all areas and you eventually, right. you know, were, got so burnt out and you ended up doing uh, switching gears after several years. What, what was, what did you take from it and where, where were you most challenged? Um, I think it's more challenge. You know, working with children is more challenging only because you have the other piece of it where you have to, you know, also work with the, the parent, whether it's the biological parent, the foster parent, or just like a family member. And that's the hardest part with that because, you know, you can be, you know, kind of coming with them some goals for them to work on, but the parent or the, whoever the guardian is, they actually have to follow up and they have to kind of follow that. And many times parents 
They don't. They don't. And yeah. so then they're wonder, they're sitting there wondering, like, well, you're doing therapy with my child, but I don't see any progress. And then you have to, in a gentle way, point out the fact that, well, have you been doing these steps? Yeah. And if they say no, then, I mean, that's the result is, well, that's the reason why it's not, there's no progress being made. That's got to be frustrating. Very frustrating. Yeah, because <laughs> you can only do so much. You can't, it's like leading the horse to water, but you yeah. can't make them drink. Right. Oh, my goodness. So in those kind of situations, what were the predominant issues with um, the people, I don't know if you could, you call them clients? Well, yeah, I, there's so many different terms you can use. Clients, um, consumers, I don't like the, the I don't I like to refer as consumers. Right. It just sounds so unperfect. So, and I don't know. Yeah. So the public, yeah, whatever. the public, right. Um, <laughs> what were some of the most prevalent issues that you, I mean, I'm guessing child abuse. Right. Yeah. Yes. Of, in all of its forms. Sexual abuse. Yeah. Sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. P- uh, trauma. Yeah. Which all falls into the category of trauma, you know, yeah. abuse. So did you have to do mm-hmm. play therapy yes. and that sort of thing? Yeah. So I worked, when I worked for the county, I worked a lot with um, CPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, majority of my clients I worked with were CPS children, young children, mm-hmm. um, adolescents, um, either been involved in like physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, just very traumatic lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, for young children, you the, the way to kind of get them to kind of open up is through play therapy. Mm-hmm. Because children don't, you know, even if ch- a child doesn't have trauma, being very young, it's hard to communicate like things that you feel or certain emotions or the things that have happened. And so play therapy just kind of opens up this like fun time of where they're playing while you, and while they're playing, kind of they're distracted with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You just kind of prompt and ask questions and eventually over time they answer them. And, you know, but it's a very slow process. It's not something that happens right away. Yeah. I mean, you know, I saw one little girl for two years who was severely traumatized. Parents wow. were both drug users. Um, you know, father was in and out of, of jail all the time. And so it took a long time for her to open up. She was very quiet, um, mm-hmm. almost nonverbal, I, sh- I would say. And then over time, as we got to, she got to know me and felt comfortable. She told me a lot of, of things I didn't really anticipate wow. her ever telling me really mm-hmm. and she was going to have the, to trust the process then, trust really. yeah you have to trust um and that was a that was a rewarding case for me because um she had foster parents that wanted to adopt her and they were wonderful and so in cps you know when you're working with cps there's times where you have these foster parents that really want these children it's not always a guarantee they're gonna be able to adopt if the parents decide to you know, decide to follow the what the courts are asking them to do, they'll get their children back. Mm-hmm. So the whole worry with this case was that parents decided to kind of step it up and decide to follow the court. And so we are all very, like, nervous mm-hmm. that she wasn't going to be adopted out. And I had to go to court, testify for this little girl, and judge basically ruled in favor of us saying, no, I don't don't think that she should be returned to her parents. Right. And so that was a really successful case, but you don't have a lot of cases like that. They yeah, go back to the parents. It's hard because it's like you don't know whether to root for. I mean, you probably do because you have the knowledge, but you don't know whether to root for the biological parents that have just been through. They've been through it, you know. Mm-hmm. They've been, you know, some probably from their own childhood that's trickled down, and then now their kids are paying a price, and they're just trying to gain their footing, and they want to keep their children, but they don't even have the tools in order to take care of themselves, let alone their child. And you feel for them because you want them to have their child. I can't imagine somebody ripping my child away. Right. But at the same time, you have to do what's in the best interest of the child. So you have to sort of remove yourself from from that. And I guess, yeah, I guess that's the ultimate goal. And, and then do the kids generally have an opinion about where they go? 
You know, when they're really or, young. Or, or are they entitled to that in court? You know, when they're older, as an adolescent, they have more of a choice. When they're young, of course, when you're a young child, no matter what trauma you've been through, they want to go back to their biological parents. Really? They do. And so that was that's, that's the difficult part because even with this little girl, you know, every time we have our therapy session, I have to walk her down to CPS so she could have visitation with her father. He never half the time showed up. So to me, my perspective, like, if you really want your child back, you're going to do all these steps to really show that you want your child. Yeah. And so for those parents that never really prove themselves, Mm -hmm. I would also, I would want to favor the opposite end. And so, but then there's, I had worked with many parents who did all the steps. Yeah. And they deserve to have their children back. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the rock bottom is when you have your child taken away. There's ever a time to put your life back together and do the work. And I guess that, that would be it for for someone um wow um so you did work with that that was kind of my question is did you work did you work with a lot of children was there a lot of experience there because my um my inkling is that a lot of our guests that will be uh, coming in here are going to have some um issues from childhood that um you know that they probably never dealt with I know so many people I mean you obviously you do too and I think I've talked to you about this too. So much of it, you can bury it and you can bury it. And then, mm-hmm. but eventually it rises to the top and it you does. have to deal with it. Right. Um, and it starts interfering in your life, whether it's, it's addiction or abuse or self-harm or, or whatever, um, it will come out in one way or another. So um, my inkling is that we'll get, just from the, you know, the people I've talked to so far is that mm-hmm. we'll get um, people that want to finally face some of, some of their um their issues from childhood so good good to know on that um before I move on to what I want to ask you next is there anything else you want to talk about in that area of your career because I want to move on to you personally okay okay um no I think we pretty much have covered you know we're going to circle back at the end but yeah okay um because I want to switch gears a bit and talk about your your diagnosis with Parkinson's and um see if you can tell us uh first of all what exactly is Parkinson's for those who are listening who don't know so it's a neurodegenerative disease and what that means is that it progressively over time um, worsens um, there's just a variety of different symptoms. And the thing with Parkinson's disease that's very complicated and I think is one reason why there's no cure as of now is that every person's Parkinson's journey is completely different from one another. So I could have this one symptom versus another person may not have and may not experience that symptom either. So it's different for everybody. So I, I'm, uh, you know, the questions you'll ask me, I'm, I'm going to speak just regarding my, sure. my experience yeah. with it. Um, do you want me to kind of go into yeah um well if we know it's a neurodegenerative mm-hmm. disease how does it um sort well for you for specifically how did it present how did you know that something was wrong and it was time to to get tested i guess so i had noticed um you know i've always been a runner so this one during the pandemic during that summer time i just you know needed to get out of the house and so i really oh this was 2020 2020 okay. yeah so this is all when this began and so i had been running every single day just because i was tired of being yeah. trapped in the house and so then i started to notice i would wake up in the morning and like my lower left side of my back would just be have a lot of pain and i would like try to get out of bed and i was like hunched over and it took me a while to like be able to straighten up and stand up and walk and i thought to myself well maybe i just like pulled a muscle mm-hmm. in my back from running 
So that continued on. And then I started noticing my left leg started tremoring, like just, you know, out of the blue, not consistent, just like randomly. So I then still attributed to the fact, well, if I pulled a muscle, it's probably just tremoring because of that. So I didn't immediately go to the doctor, I just kind of waited it out to see if it would improve. And it wasn't. So then it just started with my primary care physician. And, um, you know, she saw me in the exam room and she saw my leg was tremoring and she just kind of looked stumped. She's like, well, that's interesting because, you know, with Parkinson's, it usually starts in your hand. But mm-hmm. I had nothing wrong with my hand at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so she said, well, you know, let's, let's go ahead and have you do a CT scan of your head just to make sure there's no tumor. So that came back clear. Um, and then she said, well, let's do an MRI scan to rule out like MS. So again, went to do the MRI scan that came back clear and she was confused. She's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't really know what this is. And then she referred me to neurology. So I went to the neurologist and same thing. Um, all these providers were just like looking at me in this exam room, noticing my leg is tremoring. So just it, not involuntary, involuntary. just shaking just for shaking. anybody who doesn't know. It's just sort of like it, it moves up yeah. and down involuntary. And, yeah. it, and it had done that, um, Without stopping continuously right. for a, a while. A while, I'm yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. And so, you know, I'm in the exam room with the neurologist, and he's looking very confused, too. He's just sitting there staring at my leg. And then he goes on to kind of do, like, his own assessment, um, ask me a lot of mental health questions. You know, have you had any trauma? Ever been suicidal? And I'm like, no, n- none of that. You're like, I'm a therapist. <laughs> I know. And I don't always like to say that because then it makes it feel like I right, know everything. Right, right. But at one point, I had to kind of share that with him. I said, I, you know. Because it started to feel like he probably thinks I have a mental health condition right. because, he's like... screening you. Right? Yeah. He's screening me. And he repeated those same questions multiple times. So I was getting a little frustrated. Yeah. But I understand why he was doing that. And so he didn't really know what to make of it. I mean, he didn't say I had Parkinson's. Because, uh-huh. again, he said the same thing. It starts in your hand, typically. So then he, like, just started having me do all, these lab, all this lab work to try to rule out like autoimmune disorders, all, everything. I mean, I've gone through so much testing and everything was normal, which was good. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, why is my leg still tremoring? This is still a problem. Um, And then, you know, I I saw another neurologist for a a procedure called an EMG. So it's like where they put needles in your leg or whatever part of body is affected. And they kind of, it's like an electrical wave. Mm -hmm. And so they can kind of determine like what kind of issue you have. Yeah. And even though during the procedure, and I had this done twice, mm-hmm. um, even, and even though they can show my legs tremoring through the whole the whole you know procedure, they're still not saying I have Parkinson's. And I'm like, well, this is really strange. What do I have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so then finally, they referred me to a movement disorder specialist, which is another neurologist right. who specializes in Parkinson's or any type of you know movement disorder. And by that point. I just felt in my heart, I knew I had Parkinson's. Like, I'm like, there's nothing else this could be. Not trying to say, you know, I have the knowledge, but everything I would read, which again is not really recommended that you go on in the I internet know. and you know, yeah. read through, you know, different disorders, but I'm like, everything matched up. Mm-hmm. And so I remember that day just being in the exam room, The res- and I, I'm a patient at UC Davis, so mm-hmm. they always have a resident meet with you first. Yes. And then the doctor comes in to do their assessment. And so... When the res- resident came in and asked me all these questions, I can just tell on the look of her face mm-hmm. that she knew it was Parkinson's. I just knew it yeah. without even saying anything. And so when the, the physician came, come, you know, comes into the office, it was like I knew what she was going to say right then and there. And I like, just kind of like blanked out for a moment, just like didn't hear them talking. And I told myself, okay, I know I have Parkinson's. What am I going to do right now? Right. Number one, I can't get depressed. Like yeah. I told myself that right away. 
And then I said, I need to figure out like how am I, what am I going to do to treat this? And then as soon as I just had those thoughts, those you know thoughts in my head, then she said, you know, you have Parkinson's. I'm like, all right, I'm not surprised. And she looked at me like, you're not surprised. I'm like, no, I already knew. Wow. <laughs> you know. And so, do you feel like you're being trained, being a trained therapist, like that side of you sort of took control of the situation? That Absolutely. Do, was it, were, were there tools there for? Because that's what you always wonder. It's like you could practice something all day long on someone else, but it's like I always think about like uh, marriage counselors. Mm-hmm. Like, are their marriages perfect? You know, like right. you always wonder. Like, <laughs> are they practicing at home with their? You know, so do you feel like that part of you sort of kicked into gear and said, you know what to do? You know how to handle this? Absolutely. Yeah. I think if I wouldn't, you know, if I was not a therapist or had any training in this field, I think I would have been a complete wreck. Um, and I know that because after all this had happened, you know, I, I'm now involved in a support group that I go to monthly and, you know, listening to their stories, like one, one woman that I'm really close to in the group, she didn't tell anybody she had Parkinson's for eight years. She was embarrassed. Wow. She was a complete wreck about it. She didn't want to talk about it, was in denial. And I was like, well, I'm not going to deny this. Like, this is what is happening. And if I'm in denial, I am going to be depressed mm-hmm. and I can't do that for my family. Mm-hmm. And for myself, and I know what depression does to people because this is what I, you know, I treat a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I told her, I said, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And immediately she said, exercise. And I really? thankfully, thankfully, and I, you know, I've always been into exercise. Never been like 100%, you know, uh, consistent. Yeah. I am now. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I've always been a runner off and on, you know, done different forms of exercise. And so I was thankful that for me, I was already like on the exercise like path, mm-hmm. so it wasn't going to change much. And so she said, exercise. That's what slows the progression of this disease. I'm like, all right, I'm on it. I'm going to just exercise all the time. Um, and of course, you know, medication piece, uh, you know, started medication right away. Yeah. Didn't want to because, you know, so much fear about what's the side effects of this medication, what's it going to do to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decided like, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna do whatever she's telling me to do. Yeah. And so that's what I followed. And I can tell you literally the day after I I was on my exercise journey, decided, wow. you know what? I've always wanted to run a marathon. I'm going to make it happen because I'm, you know, what if I can't do this one day? I want to complete the goal. And yeah. just from there, like exercise all the time. And it is very helpful. It's so counterintuitive because <clears throat> it's mm-hmm. like when you're having physical issues like tremoring, I don't know. It's like counterintuitive to then go run on that limb. You know, right. <laughs> I would think I don't, I don't have Parkinson's, but I would think mm-hmm. it would be like I do have, um, you know, my some my chronic issues uh, lead to limb weakness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I it, it is counterintuitive for me to do a lot of walking because I'm mm-hmm. always afraid I'm going to collapse. And I have and I have had that years and years ago. And I know better now, like n- almost always I can trust that my legs are going to hold me up, but right. there was a time where I couldn't. And so, um, you know, it is counterintuitive to move, you know? And so, um, it's just amazing that you knew exactly how to react in the face of, um, what, what would feel like uncertainty for most people. Um, and that was a 2020. And so we're mm-hmm. 2023. So it's three years later. Has it, and I know you're still running and you're running a lot. I want to get into that, but are, um, has it progressed at all? Or like, what are your symptoms now? Yes. Yeah, so it has progressed. The thing with Parkinson's that's very hard is you can't, you can't predict how you're going to feel day to day. So there'll be days where, and again, I take medication three times a day. So it does help with the tremoring, but it's not always hundred percent. So like even right now as we're speaking, my leg is tremoring. Okay. Even though I've already taken my medication, yeah. you know, but it's 
it's just different every day and it's kind of like you just kind of take it as you come and the thing with Parkinson's too which is a very interesting uh, symptom is that again stress for everybody causes a lot of issues but with Parkinson's it really exacerbates it mm-hmm. so if I even literally think about something stressful my leg will tremor yeah my or if I'm nervous yeah. yeah that's so interesting it's so interesting so when they say like try to reduce stress right. absolutely and now I truly understand what that means yes um, even though it's really hard to do in yeah. life but um, I can have just random symptoms like, um, like yesterday. Um, one thing with Parkinson's, you get this like increase of saliva. So some people drool. I, I've not gotten to that level, but I, yesterday I could feel like, you know, an amount of saliva more in my mouth, which yeah. sounds like a very weird thing to say. Um, you know, and my left side of my body is affected. So I even have weakness in my left hand. So for me, typing can be a little challenging and I've, you know, I'm a fast typist, but I have to try to communicate with my left hand Mm -hmm. in a way where to make myself type with the same speed as I can with my right hand. Right. It's very hard. And the one thing with Parkinson's is very hard to describe to someone how you feel. There's no, sometimes there's no words to put to how you're feeling. But is it um, the less functionality of uh, the limb, the more it's going to deteriorate, sort yes. of. So that's why you continue to force yourself to use something that's, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Right. And, and again, intuitively, you want to not use it. Yes. Because it's, and I, gosh, I've been, I have done that where I've intuitively, because my grip strength in my, in my hands have been affected. And so I'll use one over the other, which I don't, I, I think actually lent itself to decrease grip strength over time, which is mm-hmm. so crazy. And I, um, and I, I try to use my left hand as much as possible. I even use hand grippers every day just to like strengthen my really? hand. Really? I do. No one told me to do that. That's yeah. So crazy. I, did, I just, one day I was in the store and I saw these hand grippers and I'm like, I wonder if that would help my hand. And I just bought them. Yeah. And so I just do it like once in the morning and just like 20 times just as hard as I can, uh-huh. um, which I felt, which I actually feel like has worked and mm-hmm. been helpful. So I try not to not use my left hand, even though it feels very difficult to do it sometimes, mm-hmm. or even my left foot with certain things. Um, I purposely just make sure to use that side of the body as, as much as I can. Did you know intuitively to do that or did your doctor say continue to, like did they give you this information or no. how did you know to do that? You, you just knew? No, I mean she just said exercise. She wasn't very specific as like what to do. Um, the one thing that, well, I should say boxing is the best form of exercise for Parkinson's. No kidding. Yes. Oh. So that's one thing she did tell me, but she, she really didn't give me like a, a regimen of any sort. She just said, just exercise as, you know, couple, 20 minutes, you know, a couple times a week. And I'm like, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to do it every day, <laughs> <Every> day <yeah. laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm nervous. Like I don't want this to get worse. Yeah. Um, but you know, I feel blessed in a way that I can exercise because so many people with Parkinson's can't, mm-hmm. and this is a disease of the elderly. So mine's considered young, young and you're onset. 40, what? I'm 47, but 47, I was diagnosed at 45. 45 when you got it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm curious if – do you still see the same doctor? I do. Is any of her other patients doing what you're doing? Like, I wonder if she uses you as an example. She, I think she does. <laughs> I mean, can well, you imagine? She kind of swayed me when I told her. So I got diagnosed in May, uh-huh. and then I decided to do this marathon in – probably the end of June of that year. Oh. And, you know, it's not, I, I mean, I've been running for so many years, but not this, not that intensely. And yeah. so when I told her what I was going to do, she didn't want me to do a marathon. She thought it was not a good idea. Oh. I think she was scared for me. I'm like, well, what, what could, what's the worst what's thing the worst that could possibly happen? happen? So 
I did it. And then I sent her some photos of the race and she was like, I'm so proud of you that you actually did this. Oh my gosh. And so I think from that point, I think she realized, okay, this woman's just going to do whatever she's going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, from since that point, every exam, because I see her every three months, mm-hmm. not that I have to, mm-hmm. I just feel for my peace of mind. Yeah. I want to check in with her and just like, you know, mm-hmm. let her know how I'm doing and whatnot. And so they can they conduct the same exam. It's like a variety of things like you know hand tapping, um, walking up and down the hall. Yeah. It's the That's, same thing as MS. Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. And so every exam they've had so far, knock on wood, she said, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. She's like, if I didn't know you, she said, I wouldn't even know you had Parkinson's. Wow. You know, now I haven't seen her in a couple of months, so mm-hmm. it's gotten a little worse. But most people don't know that I have it unless I tell them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so you so you start it started in your foot, and then it, mm-hmm. it progressed to your to your hand, your left hand, mm-hmm. right? And so, right. but but you predominantly the symptoms occur in your in your in your leg or your foot. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, and you have them every day, pretty much. I mean, there'll yeah. be some days, and again, too, medication will help some days better than others. So it's yeah. it's like this they call it off and on periods. So like I can go sometimes like a week, and my tremor is not so bad, and mm-hmm. then I can have like the next week where like it's just like going. It's tremoring so much that the medication is not helping with it. Yeah, uh, um, I remember you telling me that. Um, well, you, it was actually proven to you through running that you would notice that you felt better and your body responded better when on the days that you ran or yeah. this, when you ran. But there, was, what was the form of exercise that you said actually it was not good, made it worse? So I have a Peloton, and yeah, and I also was a member of this kickboxing gym. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I would exercise there and use my Peloton, I would get done with the workout and my leg would tremor even worse. Right. So I was thinking to myself, is extra, and I started to question, is exercise mm-hmm. actually really good for this disease? Because why am I having this experience? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my neurologist told me, she's like, no, exercise still is going to benefit you. And she's like, was confused. Like, I don't know why your tremor is worse after you're done. Yeah. Now with running, I don't have I don't that. have it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can't explain this, but... Some days when I start to start, you know, running, my leg feels a little odd and I feel like, okay, am I going to fall? And I question myself. But then as I start to go, it just starts to feel better. And I can't really explain why that is. It's like the body's like, making that connection. Yeah. Like this is what we're supposed to do. Right. Like, and maybe I, like the repetition of it or something. Yeah. Um, so yes, I still do those other forms of exercise and the tremor will you know, be worse after the extra, the routine is done, but then it gets better as it right. goes on. You know, I liken it a lot too. Um, with me, most people know I only do weight training. I don't do any cardio at all because cardio, it's like that for me, cardio will take me out. I mean, really? for the rest of the day and sometimes into the next day. Okay. And weight training gives, gives me energy and strength. And, and I might have a little bit of a dip, mm-hmm. um, especially like if I've taken off time and gone back to it. Um, a dip where energy um, is lacking, it comes up again. But with cardio, I kept trying to get into cardio because obviously right. cardio is mindless. You don't have to like think about you just what, do it. <laughs> yeah, form and all this stuff or how much weight and how, you know, how much do I increase it to? You just get out there and do it. And my kids love running. So I, uh, but I, it takes me out. So it is mm-hmm. interesting how everybody sort of responds differently to different exercise. And it just goes to show like, don't give up, right. you know? I think there's something for everyone. Some people bike Peloton is where oh, yeah. it's at, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that's the best thing, especially for people that have um, chronic like debilitating diseases. Sometimes the bike is, is the best swimming, you know, right. is another one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay. Most, and most people in my support group um, bike. Really? Most See, of them that's do. so crazy. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Um, I'm trying to think where I'm, 
looking down here. Okay, so the running the marathon started in June. You mm-hmm. got diagnosed in May. May. Mm-hmm. And um, what were the reactions from those around? I know the reactions of your doctor, but from those around you um, when – so you have Parkinson's. Basically, you know, you I don't know if you're announcing you – did you announce you had Parkinson's? Like, yes. was it – okay, it was an yeah. announcement. And then you're saying, by the way, I'm going to run a marathon now. Mm-hmm. Like – how, how did people react to that? Were they, um, was there ever a questioning or ever any issues with that? I think people were scared. Okay. <laughs> scared, like, why are you taking this on? Can you do this? And, you know, at the time, like, I had the symptoms, but I'm like, I still can do this. I don't, you know, I'm not to the point where I can't walk or, you know, any, now if, if that was the case, I would never have, you know, completed that, you know, that, or started the training for that. But I think people just like, I mean, my husband was like, was very supportive. He's like, whatever you do, you can do it. And I told myself like, well, it's either I do this or I don't. I have to prove myself that I can still do these things because I don't want to be a person where I have this chronic disorder that there's no cure for. And am I just going to live my life like doing nothing that I wanted to do before all this happened? Mm -hmm. And so that was just my mindset. I'm like, I'm just going to prove to myself if I can't do it, I can't do it. I'm just going to try. Right. Um, And that's what I did. And actually... I had a really good experience during the first marathon. I did the California International Marathon, and I uh, I, I w- wanted to wear a shirt that had something relevant to Parkinson's, but I didn't think of it at the moment, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think I told you yeah. I took a piece of duct tape, and I just <laughs> put Parkinson's will not stop me, and I just put it on my back. Yeah. And so during the run, um, I'm just running, and I forget that I have it on my back. And I'm not trying to, like, make this, like, big thing about me. I just wanted to people to see it to know, like, no matter what disorder you have, you can do sentence, these things. Yeah. So this woman just comes running up next to me, and I don't know, she just started telling me her mental health journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, suicidal, you know, tried to take her life mm-hmm. several times, and just then I shared with her a therapist, and I, she just, well, first she said, I like, I like what's on your back, what it says on your back. I'm like, thank you. And then she just, like, felt comfortable sharing with me. So I'm like, wow, this is, like, an amazing experience. Like, I'm running (laughs) during a first marathon. And here I have this woman sharing her very personal story of her mental health, you know, issues. And so I thought, wow, that was, like, just made it even more exciting to Mm -hmm. do this run just because, like, there are people out there that probably are scared to talk about their disorders. And they shouldn't be ashamed of it. I've, I've never been once ashamed of this. Yeah. I, I openly talk about it. I don't go announcing it to everybody, but right. if, if they have a question, I will answer it. Yeah. I don't think you should be ashamed. Do you find that uh, people have different ways of reacting to it or like they kind of avoid this? I mean, because I, I, I asked, um, obviously I've had, you know, issues, of my, not, not issues in my own life, but I do notice that people react differently. Mm-hmm. Some people are so, they're like me, they're so curious and they want to know everything and they're, you know, very supportive and they just um, are eager to sort of... Um, find out more and other people will avoid it they will they just i do everything they can to avoid it and the minute it's brought up they'll leave the room yeah (laughs) so you know have have you had that or like what advice would you give people if um they find out that a loved one has a specific illness do how do do you how do you confront that i mean i have had and i can tell i have a really wonderful supportive running group um but i can tell even though i've been you know running with them for a while now I feel they want to ask me questions, but mm-hmm. I think they're afraid to because I don't think they feel that I want to talk about it. Um, but I do. Like, I just don't want to make it like this big thing of uh-huh. like uh, the focus is on me because I have Parkinson's. I don't want that to be the case. 
So they'll say, are you, are you doing okay? And I know what that means now. Like, are, is your Parkinson's okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I share with them, you know, when I'm having a not so good day, I'll tell them. Yeah. Um, how would I, you know, for people that have these disorders or any, any medical issue, like you shouldn't be afraid to talk about it and you shouldn't be ashamed of it because I'm, you know, the way that I think we all struggle with something, yeah. whether it's a mental health condition, a physical health condition, or just anything. Relationships, whatever. Relationships, yeah. you know, whatever it Divorce, is. Divorce, parenting, you name right. it. Every, somewhere. Yeah. Everything. There's no point to like not talk about it. Yeah. You know, but people are scared because they don't want to be judged. Yeah. That's the, the hugest factor in that. But I don't care if people judge me. I'm yeah. just going to share what I experience and whether you take it as something that's helpful or not. I mean, I want to... I want to talk about it because I want to help people. I yeah. want them to know that you can, with this disorder, it's awful. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But you can still live life. Yeah, still I think can do it. so much of it has to do with the way that someone presents it to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you well enough by now, even though I haven't known you very long, to know that you are not trying to elicit pity from people. Not at all. And so it's the energy that you bring it to the world. If you're bringing it to the world in a way that you're trying to um, get that out of people, people are going to have a bad reaction, like, mm-hmm. because they can sense it, you know, and I think I have been there, you know, I, I probably have, I know I have, I can tell from my, my Facebook memories that like, <laughs> like 10 years ago, I'm like, oh my goodness, I needed attention that day. <laughs> it's just so funny. But um, yeah, I think, I think it is in the way you do it. And also too, like, I wanted to, you to tell the audience a little bit about your schedule, because it is, okay. and, and by the way, I just need to preface this, and I've told you this too, this is not an inspirational podcast. There are so many motivational, inspirational podcasts, and I know because I listen to them and mm-hmm. I enjoy them, but there's so many, and there's I don't feel like enough podcasts that just sort of tell you the truth, like are honest and real and raw. And um, they're looking for, that 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 look for a way, like the, the path out or the through line, mm-hmm. which is what I sort of want to have here. And not someone who's necessarily made it to the other side and we're congratulating them and we're telling their story, but someone who's sort of in the middle of it, looking for that through line. And that's sort of what this podcast is. But I happen to have somebody in front of me who is inspirational. So while you're here, tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, I mean, your schedule is pretty interesting. And, I, and your mindset behind it is what is also interesting. I know you have, you run, obviously. Tell us about your running schedule. So I run three to four times a week and I run very early because my group is very, they're just morning runners. So I wake up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, we meet at different locations to run. So we usually start running like 4.45 in the morning. So you wake up at 4. 4. Mm-hmm. And you meet at 4.45. Yeah. Then we start our running. Um, so, you know, we run a certain uh, number of miles on certain days, and mm-hmm. then we do long runs on Saturdays. Um, so work out first in the morning, then, you know, I have a 10-year-old son. So when I get home, get myself ready, kind of get him going for school. Um, and then I work a full eight-hour, uh, probably more than eight hours a day, but um, a an eight-hour day schedule as a therapist. Um, and then, you know, my day's filled. I mean, I wake up so early and by the time, like, you know, I go to bed, it's like nine o'clock. So I've done, you know, been up since four all the way till like 9 p.m. Oh my gosh. So you, know. you, so you run three days a week. Mm-hmm. Did you tell me that you did something else on the other days? Yeah. So use? I switch it up. So I cross train. So on, on two to, two or three days of the week, I do cross training. So I'll do my Peloton. I'll do mm-hmm. a weight workout mm-hmm. or... I used to belong to this kickboxing gym, so that one closed. Nine rounds across yeah, next door to us. Yeah, I miss it. So I'm trying to find another alternative for that right yeah. now. But um, I, I kind of rotate my workouts. Yeah. Are you ever um, – obviously, a lot of this is mind over matter. Yes. Do you 
do you find that when you do show up to your workout, you even, the energy does eventually come or do you struggle with energy at all? No, I struggle with energy for sure. But my morning, I've always been a morning person. So morning for me is my best time of the day. I actually wake up with energy. Mm, um, it's the evening, late afternoon, evening is when all my energy disappears. Right. So that's really hard because Parkinson's, you know, you have a lot of fatigue and it comes on suddenly. Yep. And you can't predict that either. So for me, if I didn't work out in the morning, honestly, I probably wouldn't be able to work out in the evening right. time because I have not as much energy. Yeah. You know. Oh my goodness. And so, I think, and I think for me, working out, starting your day that way, it just kind of mentally sets me for the day. Yeah. And a better mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. Gosh, it is so hard to get into that. I mean, I work it's out so in the morning hard, yeah. as well. Um, I only work out a couple days a week, and I do weights, and I but I work out at you know nine, and I would and I. I could tell myself I need like three hours in the morning before I can even start to work out. <laughs> I probably don't, but, um, but yeah, I mean, to, so when you get up in the morning, there's not a part of your brain that says, I don't want to do this. Go back to sleep. Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, there is. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All I just want to make sure we're all normal yep. here in the, in the room. <laughs> oh yes. I'm not, I'm not just a special <laughs> okay. person. No. I mean, there's days I'm like, I just want to lay here and go back to bed. Yeah. But then I have to remind myself, okay, if I, because this is the thing. I mean, I think we all experience this with exercise. If you skip, yep. I'll do it tomorrow. Yep. Tomorrow comes and doesn't happen. And so for me, I'm like, I look at it as exercise for me is not a choice. Right. I have to do this. It's your for medicine, my, right? For, yeah, for my yeah. illness. And so that's what gets me up every single morning is like, and, I, and I'm held accountable by my running group because they're so supportive and there's so many of us. That like if I don't show up, then I have to like I feel like I have to make up an excuse, and I don't want to do that, right. right? Even though I have Parkinson's, it's still not an excuse. Like mm-hmm. I gotta, I have to do this, and so that's just kind of I just try to like you know the alarm goes off, try not to give it a thought, like just automatically just don't pop think, out of bed. just do, don't think about it. Yeah. I have my clothes ready for you know in the evening time again. I'm ready for the next morning, so I have no excuse. Like yeah. okay, everything's ready for me to go. I just gotta get dressed and out the door. Yeah. You know? I always say that. I always tell, like, my daughter, too. Um, she's got her own little set of some challenges, and I always say, like, don't think, just do. The yeah. minute you start thinking about it and negotiating with yourself, you've talk lost. Her, you talk yourself so, out of it Yeah, every don't time. think. Just do. Just move your feet, and don't let your brain get in the way. And I've had to learn that myself. I mean, it's so – you know what's so hard? And this is, like, a subject for another podcast. But I remember early on when I first started having my own physical issues, Every and I was a go, 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 very type A person. Everybody was telling me, you need to slow down. You need to listen to your body. And it was constant. For, like, two years, <laughs> listen to your body. Body, listen to your body slow down you're not superhuman and so I finally started listening to my body and now I can't now it's like to stop listening to your body and listen to your mind that tells you what's actually better for you. if I listen to my body only I would never get out of bed oh, so it's I just know so funny it's like why did I ever listen to my body but anyways um okay so um you okay so you run you do you do peloton you used to do boxing but I was going to ask you something oh I know what I was gonna ask you um with your running, because I, I know people are going to be curious, and I was mm-hmm. actually talking to my trainer, who, by the way, I go to not because I don't know how to work out, but because of that accountability. Right. Because if I don't show up, you know, it doesn't matter that I have a, a chronic illness. Like, she's she's she knows I'm not there, and I have to come yeah. up with an excuse. Right. So um, she's a runner as well, and I was telling her about you. How many miles do you run to, on an average week, like, or on an average day per week? Let's see. Probably, let's see. I would probably say about, it varies, two days of the week we run six miles, and then our long runs are like usually like 12, 13, but it increases oh. when you're in training. So right, right. I'm training for a marathon right now. I just started. So it's just kind of you start slow, and then you kind of crease up. So eventually I'll get to 20 miles on a Saturday. Wow. 
um, you know, but you just follow, follow a plan and you have to do a lot of cross training because right. you don't want to injure yourself. So yes. I'd probably say about, I don't know, 15, probably like 25 miles or more a week. A week. But mm-hmm. so on a low day, it's six. Six. Yeah. On a low day. <laughs> so right. Crazy. How long does it take to run six miles? Less than an hour. Oh, man. Okay. It just depends because we, we so you know, crazy. we kind of do, everyone has their different pace. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we just... I can run faster sometimes, but just kind of like give myself like a break some some days to run a slower pace. Did you run yesterday? I did. How much did you run? Twelve. Wow, that's amazing. And so you went your marathon? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I ran seven. Seven, seven, because I'm starting okay. at my training. So you start okay. low miles, and then you just eventually increase. Gotcha. Yeah. And when's the marathon? Um, November 12th. November 12th. Okay. Yes. And you just started training for it? I just started okay. training. All right. I want to go. Where is it? In Greece. Oh, Athens, I won't Greece. be there. I'll be there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so exciting, though, Greece. Yes. Um, okay, so as far as um, your role here on the podcast goes, when we do have the guests that request to have you on their episodes, what I want to just talk to the audience a little bit, because I know a lot of sure. people are um, are thinking about being guests. I've talked to a lot of them. Um, what can they expect um, from you as sort of our reoccurring um, guest therapist. I know one of the things you asked me was, um, with regard to whether you could conduct therapy during the episode, which I think is brilliant for everyone involved, but is that still your objective for during, during those episodes to sort of conduct therapy with the guests that come on? Oh yes, absolutely. Just, okay. and just answer any questions, you know, re- re- you know, related to my experience, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and just answering questions honestly, because I, the type of therapist that I am, I'm just very authentic. I don't feel like I should be considered to be this therapist that's above you. Like I, with all my clients, I'm just like on the same level. Um, and at times, you know, I'll share personal experiences, not too personal, but if you have to make connection and you have to have a person relate to you, whether you're a therapist or not, like you just have yeah. to be on that same playing field. And I feel, you know, a lot of therapists don't really approach Cross it that, that way. Well, they're, they're, I feel like there's this invisible boundary for yes. them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I am here, you are here. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I approach therapy. I'm just a very honest, realistic person, and I just want my clients to feel comfortable talking to me. And, you know, establishing rapport is like the number one with therapy. If you can't establish rapport with your clients, you really can't do therapy. Yeah. No, 100%. It doesn't work. 100%. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, you know, have been asking about um, if they can do podcasts like rem- remotely. And I even talked to you about this. You're mm-hmm. right now, you work, you work for Kaiser. Is that okay to mm-hmm. say? Oh, yeah, okay. It's fine. Um, yes. She's a therapist with Kaiser, but she does the therapy uh, remotely over a screen, which is much more difficult than doing it face-to-face. So for now, um, we're going to be doing all of our podcasts face-to-face. I just think it's so much easier to connect. I I have a really hard time. I get distracted if I'm on a screen with somebody trying to have a serious conversation. So that's how we're going to be doing it. And... um, And I I want to follow up with that with another question. But um, the subject matter we're um, covering here on the podcast runs sort of runs the gamut of everything from addiction to domestic and sexual abuse to mental illness to divorce to parenting to adultery and everything in between um do you feel like just for those who are listening do you feel like you've sort of have experience in all those areas because i know people are going to ask okay because that's those are sort of the i would say the um pillars that's a horrible word for those things (laughs) but you know like the areas that sort of are that a lot of the interest is falling within right um but there's a lot of other i mean and some of it is some of it is some are things as um you wouldn't think about like the um the like the heaviness or the weight of perfection 
people oh, that are struggling uh, from OCD. Yes. Or, or image perfect. Like I have, I have people clients like I'm that. treating that right now. I have two clients with this perfectionistic outlook and they can't get past it. They can't get past it. Mm-hmm. So it's not all just horrible, dark trauma. I mean, that's oh, right. going to be there. Um, we're going to take, or we're not really um, ruling out anything, but um, it's things you wouldn't think as well. Um, I know there's a lot of like parenting, um, uh, co-parenting, parent parental alienation, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature, or, or parents that have children who are going through um, dark times and how to how to get through that. So, so it sort of runs that game. And I think that Katira really can speak to all of these areas. So, just for those who are listening, if you are interested in becoming a guest, you know, head over to the website and submit an inquiry. It's um, www. Actually, you don't have to say www. I keep doing that. <laughs> it's just the humanityunlockedpodcast.com. Sorry. Mark told me the other day, he's like, you don't you know you have to do that anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm so used to doing it. Um, okay. Um, so right now you're working as a remote LMFT for Kaiser and you're gearing up to open your own private practice, uh, something I'm obviously so excited about for you because of how much it's needed. Um spoken to you about this a little bit about you know we were looking during the lockdown for even out of the lockdown for 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 therapy and um and jasmine you know was okay with me sharing this too but mm-hmm. um you know for her and right. um even for me for a little bit and it everybody's booked they're not taking yeah. patients and they're definitely not taking uh, minors so mm-hmm. um i mean it's very you, you can find them but it's difficult and to find a good one is even more difficult um as of right now for everyone listening do you have an idea for when you'll begin taking clients at your private practice and like is the goal uh between now and the end of the year or what are you looking at right now yeah by the end of the year is okay. my goal okay. so i've kind of started applied for my business license kind of took in the steps so far so that's my goal is by the like sometime in december okay up and running okay that's going to be so cool. I know. Sign us up. <laughs> yeah. And so you're going to be you're in, so it's LMFT. So it's, um, you do marriage counseling, right. you do, um, families mm-hmm. and children, like everything, right? Yeah. I know it's interesting because when you say marriage family therapist, people get the misconception that, oh, you only deal with couples and, you know, children, but no, I, as an LMFT, you see pretty much any, any client, any age range, any disorder. Yeah. I know. I always have a heart. I'm like, it's not just those. It's not just marriage and I know the name family. is misleading. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's it's all the things in between. Yes. Um. Okay. Well, I think that's it. Unless there's anything else you want to say, I feel like we covered so much, and I'm just so excited. I think we're gonna probably would we recorded this in about an hour ish, so um probably be able to release it in one part. Um, is there yeah. anything you want to add before we sign off? No, I'm just really excited about this opportunity. I think this is gonna be such a good platform for people to be able to share honestly and openly about, you know, their struggles, because I think we need more of this. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, no one should feel like alienated that they can't talk about these certain things. This happens to people. Yeah. And the more that you're able to share and, and, and have support, I think that's what it comes down to. A lot of people don't have support. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anybody that hears this episode and who, you know, who's thinking about becoming a guest and you want to request, request Katira for your recording of your episode, um, email me at Kimberly at humanityunlockedpodcast.com and um, we can have, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, she, I am working with her schedule a little bit, but we can always, we're, we're always able to, so far been able to um, line it up uh, with, with the people who are interested because I'm already getting people who are asking. Um, so email me and then, um, and I will connect you with her on, on your, on your episode recording. But I think that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all who are listening and we will see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode of Humanity Unlocked. Do you have a personal story to share with us? We're all ears. Visit humanityunlockedpodcast.com and send us an inquiry. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a five-star review and hit subscribe to hear weekly episodes of our show.